0: everyone and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brinsley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 115, Interview with Cassandra Alexander. Welcome, Cassandra.
1: Hi, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for like inviting me on. This is great.
0: Oh I'm so glad to have you. Now you and you and Chaz and Karen know each other from FogCon, right?
1: I yeah. You know, I I can't think we've really hung out like super extensively, but I definitely like know you guys in passing and stuff. So I'm excited for this opportunity to hang out more.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we've never even talked about FogCon. How did you get involved with FogCon?
1: Oh gosh. Um well I'm friends with Vilar, which meant ah. <laughs> that that being part of FogCon was inevitable. Um no, I, I live in the Bay Area, and I write science fiction and fantasy. Well, actually, mostly right now, paranormal romance novels. And so, um, FogCon is a, a fantastic local convention that I've just always enjoyed going to. So, um, yeah, it was. it's nice that it's so easily available, and uh, it, I've always had a good time there. So, that's kind of how I fell in.
0: It is, and Fog stands for Friends of Genre, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I always liked that it had so many interpretations of we're the friends of genre.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, plus it's, it's a nice con because the, um, the, the bar has a huge, huge open space in front of it. And so everyone hangs out in groups and you, everybody walks by the big open space where people are, as opposed to being jammed into little hallways and that kind of thing. And so you get more of a chance to meet people, see people, just catch someone as they go by, have dinner with them. It's just a fun place. It's one of my favorites, and I miss it.
1: Yeah, oh gosh, me too. I feel like that, because I know you guys were there, like that, that last pond in 2020 mm-hmm. was like the last real thing I did, practically, almost, <laughs> you know?
2: Yes, yes, it was the last real thing we did. Yeah, oh, we, I miss it. Oh, in the meantime,
0: it's <laughs> gonna say, meantime, to get back to Cassandra, how long have you been writing? And I know it's not your day job and we'll get into the uh oh. the details of that with your latest book, but give us a little bit about the background of you.
1: Oh gosh. So um <laughs> writing or successfully writing. <laughs> um i've been writing you, you know i don't
0: years. think it actually matters because there's <laughs> a lot of outpe- i believe that anybody is a writer and could be a writer so start with when you were dreams of a nitty-bitty writer and
1: <laughs> no no actually that's that's great thanks for for saying that that's super true um the first convention i went to because i'm an old was um like the world fantasy convention in monterey in like 1998 i was um, there. And, oh cool <laughs> I had just finished my first book and that was my big experience and I've basically been writing straight ever since, but I didn't actually, um, have any books published until 2011.
2: Still, that's, uh, that's not bad for, um, uh, for, you know, that's actually, that's actually pretty good. So, you know, and you've got, what? which book was it? Um, it was, it was night shifted. So I became a nurse
1: to kind of pay the bills. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but unfortunately you'll know how that is. So, um, uh, so I wrote Night Shifted, which was uh, basically about a nurse working on a floor for vampire-exposed humans, um, which was kind of like a thinly-veiled version of my life at the time, only with the addition of vampires. <laughs> and,
0: and it's not real, actually... but we're all suspicious.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the nursing parts are real. Um, and I've actually started to um, slowly get my rights back from St. Martin's for that series. So that was a five book series that I had Trad pubbed um in the early two thousand tens. So yeah.
0: Now yeah, see that was night shifted, moon shifted, shape shifted. What yeah, blood other?
1: shifted and dead shifted. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So I'm I'm hoping if I can finish getting all of my rights back and then I can kind of, you know, do the indie thing with finish it how I want to finish it and that sort of stuff.
0: Excellent. So go going back and uh did you go through an agent the first time or did you go straight to a publisher?
1: Oh no, I, I went through an agent. I had like a huge slog trying to find an agent. I think my agent um, was lucky number like
2: 72 query-wise.
1: Yeah, the only the only saving grace I realized after I found her was the fact that every time an agent rejected me on my spreadsheet, I took their line and bounced it to the bottom. <laughs> so I didn't actually see on my spreadsheet how many times I'd been rejected cumulatively. <laughs> ah. Which, which was good for my soul on accident. So I—that's an A plus plus method for getting yourself <laughs> to keep going up to that. <laughs>
0: no, but, that's ex, that's excellent. I see it all over Twitter. People's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm on my fifth rejection." We <laughs> keep thinking, "Oh yeah, only yeah. five?
1: No, I feel bad for them. Uh, and you no, know, you know, I'm sorry. Seventy two. I think that must be too many. Too many. Forty two, though. I know I was at least in the forties. This was a really long time ago. But the thing was, is I knew with that book, I was. Um, on the right path because so many agents had requested to see fulls, and most of the time they had problems with it. It was like with the tone of the book, which I knew wasn't something that I was going to be able to fix with a rewrite because I had written it how I wanted to write it. And so after I got agented, she was able to sell it pretty much right away with minimal changes. So yeah, Excellent. you just
0: never know. And the latest one you've written, and this is the one that I just finished reading last night and I'm really excited about. Looks, Is this your first nonfiction
1: Oh, yeah. Because yeah, he's never had it. a reason to write nonfiction
0: before. <laughs> it's very autobiographical, and I have already bought two copies to send out to friends of mine that are nurses just because <laughs> they'll feel less alone. So, this is, two, the, you call it the year of the nurse, a 2020 COVID-19 pandemic memoir. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, th- thank you for buying copies for your friends. That's awesome. And and yeah, no, that's my my first foray into nonfiction and I cross
2: my heart and hope to die, but not really that I never have to make another one. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading it, but Chaz brought it home and 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 of course grabbed it and read it first. And I heard him, you know, he, he's a man of few spoken words and just <laughs> raved about it. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh.
0: One of the things I liked about it is that you, it's its a memoir, and yet you blended things that had already gone before. You blended your own tweets and your own texts and your own, you made it very real for people by anchoring it in social media experience that they could go look up if they wanted to or they remember. Mm-hmm. And I have yeah. found that because a lot of people I've been, well, we've all been deeply traumatized in the last year and a half. Memory does not write as well when we're all in a heightened state of anxiety, so the fact that you kept it all and you put it down and you start each with a tweet and then the chapter goes through and elaborates more and you teach the reader, it's, it's hugely valuable. I think that there's many people that could learn a lot from just the walk down memory lane of, oh, oh, I didn't realize it was so bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to traumatize people. And I've had a lot of readers tell me, Oh, I wanted to throw it against the ball in a good way. Not because they're angry at the book, but they're frustrated with the situation described in the book. Um, But yeah, it, it, um, you know, basically I I used, I leaned into Twitter so hard because I just, for some reference here, I was an ICU, I I am an ICU nurse, Um, but um, during COVID times, and I volunteered like right off the bat because I'm, stupid idiot and to take (laughs) care of COVID patients (laughs) and so that was my lot in life for a very long time at work and um I leaned into Twitter really hard because Twitter gave me the opportunity to kind of mouth off as things were happening to me um and so that gave me kind of when I was able to download all my old tweets like a retrospective of how I sharply felt in each individual moment like sometimes you know so granular like down to the ship when it happened um, and then I would come home, and I would still be just so bursting with emotions and frustration and oftentimes anger that I would just kind of unleash into sort of journal venues which i did, because I needed to dump my feelings out basically before so I could function as a human being and and so um so me having all that material wasn't really intentional necessarily; it was just something I was doing along the way to try and stay a functional human so
3: yeah, but it's, it's turned into, I mean, you've turned it into something that is so useful because, you know, I mean, I'm, I am not ill-informed, but I had no notion of what exactly was involved in being an ICU nurse with COVID patients. And now I have a very clear picture. I, I, the book, page by page, it's so granular. It's I think it's a remarkable achievement,
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And and that, that was kind of a goal, especially in the, the in the last winter when I got into doing the two nurse talking newsletters with my friend who works in Missouri, because we wanted to explain to people what it was like, because everybody kept thinking we were just cogs in a machine and they could get cogs out of somewhere and just plunk them in and things would keep rolling on okay, you know, yeah. because unless you've actually had a loved one in an ICU, you, you don't really comprehend everything that's going on there, you know, and, and media doesn't generally reflect it because while it is life and death, it's not hugely interesting necessarily, you know, watching the numbers on somebody's um, monitor or monitoring all their medications simultaneously. It doesn't have a lot of inherent drama all the time. So yeah, Um, that's what I really wanted this book to do is to show Well, for two things. I wanted to show people what it was like to be on the inside of an ICU as a nurse. And then also for the nurses who'd gone through that experience with me to feel seen because I know all of us pretty much feel unseen right now up to this day.
0: Oh, I can, I can just imagine. I had the uh, dubious fun of I was an inpatient unit coordinator for a rehabilitation hospital for a couple years. And mm. there's more pieces in that that really spoke to me and spoke of many of the nurses that I know because people weren't, it's like teaching and nursing. You're not in it unless you basically give a crap about people. I mean, there's there's. Mm-hmm. And either one of those for the money. (laughs) But the the second piece of it was the relationships, the work relationships there are different than many people imagine for their works. For instance, there was a graveyard shift and there was a female RN on duty and there was a male um, LPN on duty and then two CNAs in and out. And she... The head nurse used to refer to him. She's like, you know, he's been my partner for 15 years. I call him my work husband. I have spent more hours of my life with him than my actual husband. And then we all laughed and she said that's probably kept her marriage going well. (laughs) But just (laughs) all of the adventures.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's super different. People don't get it because I mean, you're—I mean, it sounds dramatic to say, right? But you literally are in the business of saving lives, and so you really have to be able to rely on your coworkers in a way that you don't necessarily have to. Say, if you work at Google or something. Let me just take a big broad shot there, um, because <laughs> like very oftentimes, you know. If you don't, if you aren't able to trust in the person who's working alongside you um, and almost get that whole telepathic, I've been in the trenches with you so long, I know what you're going to ask for next, here it is type thing, um, patient care can suffer. And so it's just, yeah, it, it is definitely like work wives and work husbands. It's just like on a totally different level.
0: Well, it's true. And that also goes back to what you said about you can't just take a cog out and then put a new cog in. Mm-hmm. The staffing tends to be fairly regular. Like if it's heavy on one side, they could borrow from one unit to another, and occasionally from a few "quote unquote" sister hospitals. But, but still, it's not the same, and you don't make them out of nothing. Nurses aren't magically something I can turn a high school kid into. Maybe a CNA yeah. a little bit, but even a even a certified nurse's assistant takes oh. training and it takes classes.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, and you're, you're a team, just like a football team or any other team like that that does, you know, or, a, you know, a, a unit in the army that gets sent out for a specialized thing. You have to be able to work together. You have to know each other. You have to know, because in your, see, in, in, in my job, it doesn't matter if I drop the ball. If I, you know, it doesn't, you know, in the long term, if, if you mess something up, someone may die. And then yeah. imagine that pressure. I just, I could not deal with that kind of pressure. I'm impressed that you manage this. You're like, you're like, you know, you're you're my new hero, so. <laughs> well, you gave
0: us some of the humor, too. For instance, you told me to go Google uh, nurse whiteboard humor, and <laughs> I lost two hours and laughed my guts up, so that was hilariously. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody no, that not Googling, not we?
1: <laughs> yeah, nobody is as sarcastic as nurses are sarcastic. I just laying that down here and like oh, nurse memes. I, are I don't know. I think some IT
0: people could give you a run for your money, but it would be a close
1: <laughs> <dangerous> race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nurse memes are super brutal. It's super. Yeah, I, I love it though. We're we're because yeah, we we never have time to spare, so we just cut right to the meat of things.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, <Sarcastic, laughs> Um I know that you're at home at the moment because you've broken your leg. Oh. Mm -hmm. Silly person. Um, (laughs) If you hadn't broken your leg, do you think you would still be in an ICU treating COVID patients?
1: Well, yeah. So let me speak to that a little bit. So um, one of the main reasons I I wrote Year of the Nurse was because, um, as I pretty much say, like in the first five pages, on April 25th this past year, 2021, I – Kind of had a suicidal ideation moment at work where I realized, oh, how ironic it is that I'm taking care of people trying to keep them alive, and I really don't give a shit about mine. And I started crying, and I didn't really stop crying for uh, several weeks. Um, so I got hold of my very old therapist at that time. Um, out of pocket, they're out of network, and so I was paying for her out of my own pocket to get a hold of her because th- the whole therapy system out here is like hugely impacted. I'm sure it's everywhere. And um, she was like, oh my God, you have PTSD. You need some time off. And I was like, really? That would be great. <laughs> because I, I was really, really, really messed up. And um, luckily my therapist knew, because she's known me for forever, that I also write. And so she was like, let's, um, in addition to the other things we're doing, which is like talk therapy. And EMDR therapy, which is what they do with combat pilots or sorry, combat vets to kind of overcome PTSD, um, which, I, which I found super, super useful um, to also try and write a book about things. And then that's where the nurse was born because I was like, oh, surely I've got like some material here. And then I went and collated back everything that I had written. And it turned out I had so much. And I just really had to um, winnow it down and put in a couple more original essays to actually form the book that you guys so kindly read. Um, I was supposed to go back to work after that break in early August, and I wound up what I thought at the time was spraining my ankle in July. And I have an extraordinarily high pain tolerance, and I'm an idiot. So (laughs) I (laughs) I walked around on that, and then I was like, huh. I don't think I can do 10,000 steps a day on this ankle next week. I better go in. And then they took an x-ray and you always know when you go, when you walk into the x-ray room and then the x-ray tech comes back with a wheelchair for you. and, yeah. goes, you need this. and I'm like, Oh, okay. I've done something here. <laughs> and like, and like, oh, like half a week later I was getting surgery on my ankle, but um, long story short, I was actually, I really, I did want to go back to work. Was I looking forward to it? No, but I, I did want to go back and I do want to go back and I kind of have survivors built still being on the sidelines now, not being able to go back because I know I see these, um, I'm still on my nurse Facebook private group for my hospital. I see how short staffed we are. I see my new boss's very plaintive emails begging people to come in paying obscene amounts of money and there's just no interest in anybody picking up extra shifts at this point because we're all so exhausted so um I do hope when I'm finished with rehab and stuff to go back for if nothing else to prove to myself that I can Mm -hmm. um but and I feel I feel kind of bad if I were looking for a different job on the side right now so I'm not going to do that because it's just not who I am but um Yeah. Will I be an ICU nurse for forever after this? I doubt it. And I think I probably speak for like all the ICU nurses in the world right now. Like there's just once you reach a point and and, which isn't to say that I'm like a lottery winner or that I'm hugely financially comfortable or anything. But there comes a point when your quality of life outweighs your need to make money. And if money is the only thing they can offer you to come in, it's just not going to work
0: your story, your story sounds remarkably similar to my friend Sam, who is brace yourself a social worker up in Oakland no. oh
1: gosh and
0: and they had some challenges listening to and every day day in and day out of the feeling of hopelessness of that nothing they do gets better and this situation keeps being worth, and why doesn't anybody care and i've I've listened to a lot of why doesn't anybody care and and held them for a few tears here and there. So I, I think PTSD in the job is more than just danger. It's more than just fire and guns and knives. There's, there's a lot from people that have empathy and caring and in what can largely seem like a very uncaring world.
1: For sure. For sure. Like the words that we use medically to kind of describe this when we're at the bedside, it's like either cognitive dissonance or or moral distress, because, mm. you know, we're always experiencing as ICU people, low levels of moral distress, ED2, people in the emergency department as well, just because a lot of times people expect us to do the impossible. Right. And that's the kicker right now with all those people, you know, all those nurses in Texas and Florida and Georgia trying to staunch the tide of, um, unvaccinated people because the COVID affecting those people has in those people's minds come out of nowhere. And so they are going to be inherently unwilling to let their loved ones go. Right. Like the American relationship with death is so effed up anyways.
0: Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's true.
1: Yeah. So, so those people are just going to be expecting miracles to happen because miracles are what you see happening all the time on TV and life just doesn't work like that. But when you are bedside, it's just super demoralizing to, and, and not that people's care choices should be based on like their bedside nurse's feelings necessarily, but when all of your patient situations are essentially moving deck chairs on, tit- on the Titanic, when you've gone to your job to make a difference in people's lives and nobody's living, that just really messes with your head.
0: Oh, I could see that. And I noticed that there was a difference in your style between, I went back and picked up one of the, uh, let's call it the saucy erotica novels and (laughs) (laughs) this one. And besides just using the word fuck a great deal more, there was, it was a different tone. And I have to say, I really liked the real life tone, the real life Cassie tone of you explain things in ways that work for nonfiction in a way. And I really wanted to dig down into that. If you can it's in the way that you have to be careful in fiction of, is it too much exposition? Am I explaining too much? Am I going to lose the reader? But in a memoir, and nonfiction, you can go into the nitty-gritty details. And I, and I love that you describe down in what the lungs do, down to saying, I've typed alveoli so many times I start typing ravioli, and that also made me <laughs> laugh like crazy. <laughs> yes. But did, did you find yourself, was it easier then to write the nonfiction or was it easier to write back? You know the fantasy. Um,
1: you know, I I would say like last uh, last year was such a weird time. I wrote a lot a lot of words last year, but um, my my fiction last year was to get away from bedside. So I wrote like four books last year, and, and uh, admittedly, they're paranormal romance, which is um, a sh- kind of on the shorter side. And and you know they're going to have a happy ending and stuff. Um, so that it wasn't was, like
0: was that cathartic it was, in its own way to oh to gosh, bring a yeah, bit yeah. of happiness?
1: Yeah. yeah, no, that's why I was writing so much. I would just like I would dream about those books when I wasn't being traumatized by work, and I would work on them on the breaks that I got at work, and I would come home. I would bark my feelings into a journal or some other place, and then I would go back to writing those books, and it was like a dissociative way to find happiness because I wanted to be in a world where I could create things and make things beautiful and cheerful and people fell in love and everything was going to be okay. So um, I really found the value in softness and romance and um, kindness. I think writing, writing kind of like um, my, my steamy paranormal romance that I um, write both as my, as Cassie Alexander and then also with a friend, Carol Lockhart Um, and yeah. I'm sorry, I think (laughs) that answers your question. It does, it
0: does. (laughs) (laughs) Although although it brings up a new one, and I was going to say, you've written books with somebody, even if they're short novellas or short paranormal romances. How does it work to say, okay, friend, let's sit down and write something about how a German shepherd and a parakeet fall in love? (laughs)
1: <laughs> we, you know, she and I, so um, my my friend Kara and I, we actually went to Clarion West in 2007 together. So we've known each other for a really long time and we have a super high level of trust in the other person's opinion in, um, in the realm of what it is that they do. And so I'm like a workhorse. I just want to spit out words. And so we we have a discussion usually before I launch off into a book. And, oh, hi kitty. Um, If you hear my cat, I'm sorry about that. Um,
0: we like cats. We do <laughs> like cats. We call them coworkers.
1: So, <laughs> he's definitely a coworker. Um, so, so I'll write. So we'll discuss the, the high level concept of what a book is going to be like, and what maybe the trope we're going to explore in it is. And you know, if that interests both of us, or if somebody you know doesn't want to do it. And then I kind of come up with a really big plot and I write like 10,000 words and then I show them to her. And so sometimes she'll be like, "Mm, no, this tone isn't right or this isn't selling right now. She's much more kind of like the the editorial side of things. Um, But then if she likes something I do and then I generally just take everything um, home and do it myself and get a draft out to her in like three or four months and then she sends it back and gives me edits and stuff and kind of keeps me in the right genre lane because she has more experience and more time to read Paranormal than I do and to kind of keep everything on track. And then she's responsible for all of the business elements as well, like our Facebook ads, which is not a thing that I want to take on. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we kind of have um, – I, I don't, I don't think that we co-write in the way that normal people co-write, but we definitely pull our own weight because she'll send me a book back and she'll be like, you know, this is great except for – on this page here, these characters really need to do something else. And every time she gives me a suggestion, it makes the book better. So,
2: okay, so,
3: that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Acknowledging the editorial contribution as basically an equal an equal share, I like that. Um, what's what, what what name do you publish these under?
1: Um, so, so we have a series out right now. Um, it's it's like the Prince of the Other World series. It's my name is Cassie Alexander, obviously, and she's Kara Lockhart. But to take pity on our cover designers, we're going to try and be Cassie Lockhart in the future. Sure. And actually, we just um, released a, a, a new book today called Wolf's Princess. This Ooh. is my my. Um, an expiration of the virginity trope, which actually wasn't actually about virginity, but I was like, I want to play with this. And, and I was like, can I do this? And she was like, only if you do it well. <laughs> 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 but I think, I think I pulled it off with her help. So yeah, it's, uh, it's good because it's when you're doing yeah. indie publishing, there's so much to be doing that if you, it's, it'd be hard to keep track of all the balls on my own, and so I'm really glad that I can kind of just give her text and then let her run with it. Because, again, like all the ads are like keeping abreast of like what covers need to look like nowadays or like what blurbs are the most popular. It's uh, it's just so much.
0: <laughs> I, that, I'll have to get in touch and talk with her because I'm curious about where anybody looks to find what covers are popular these days.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Cassie, we are going to make you give us her contacts.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid so because now I'm like covers. Let's talk about cover. I see everybody's books are being reissued. Uh, Katie Murphy had some stuff coming out, new books. I'm like, a new cover, new audience. I need to learn some psychology here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think she just haunts down the Amazon bestseller list a lot, a lot, a lot. But then you have to be smart enough to consider, oh, is all this up here just because? They've been successful for forever, and they're running a really good sale. Or is this a genuine trend of what's happening now? You know,
0: I like it. It's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah. So, do you see yourself now that you've written now that you've written a memoir, a very a very piercing and heartfelt memoir with so much emotion? Have you considered taking? I mean, you have a paranormal nurse. Have you considered straight up uh, lit of having romance just in the hospital, or is that because because to a certain oh, extent, I worked in a hospital, and the idea of romance in a hospital just made me giggle, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that is like, uh, I, yeah, yeah, it makes me giggle and or want to gag. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> like, no, no.
1: The hospital but, is like the least sexy environment ever. If you've ever worked in a hospital,
0: it really isn't
1: different about it. It's like, it's like the Aegean stables, but only for humanity.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to see. So here you have you have the the LPN cleaning up where a patient was incontinent of her room, and the the handsome intern comes with a bucket. Oh, that <laughs> bucket is so beautiful.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like like I think it's great to make fast friendships fast. Like I've never like when you meet a nurse and you find a, a or any healthcare worker usually, and you find out that the other person's a healthcare worker, then you can just take it take your relationship up a notch right there and just be instantly honest with the other person without any artifice. Because You don't have to hold your true self back. You know, you don't have to worry yeah. that you're going to scare them or scar them or anything like that. And so, so works great for those kind of relationships, but it's not sexy. Not like they make it look like on TV, like yeah. at all. So yeah. What about the so nurse never, and the attractive, attractive
0: firefighter that? paramedic? Yeah.
1: <laughs> That never. I did ambulance transport for a while, and some of those guys were cute. And then when I was in Bern, um, we would have uh, residents there because it was a teaching hospital, and, and they were all cute. Some of them were cuter than others, but I was just like, oh, my gosh, so you guys are like 24,
0: 25. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's that other problem, yes.
2: <laughs> well, have you been? Um, have you considered writing – yeah, you, you know, using all of this that you've um, experienced recently and writing a novel that's non-genre at all? Oh, it, like a literary novel? I mean, yeah. just like straight
1: up. Um, you know, I can't say that I haven't considered it, but I just haven't found the... Right. Well, I did write one book, but unfortunately, my agent didn't like it. It was about a um, sociopathic teen who the point was that you were supposed to kind of be a writer along in her experiences and uh, have like the slow dawn of horror that she wasn't a good person and she stays a bad person. And um, it was about the ride. And my agent was like, this is unsellable. I was like, darn (laughs) it. I think that's the only contemporary thing I've written. Oh,
2: it's I'm trying to read it now. Yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because that, that kind of, I was just thinking that, that in, you know, we're still in, in, still in the, in, under the, the thrall of COVID to some extent, that a liter, modern literary novel, especially, you know, from a nurse's standpoint, I think um, would be, uh, I think it would, I think it would be w- very worth. Writing, or looking into, I think would be um, a good time for it if you're if you're doing it, you know, I, you know, have a be dating you know. in the time of COVID, a nurse's
0: perspective <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. you can't meet anybody. So they've got to <laughs> write to you so you could have an amazing series of letters. <laughs> oh, yes, the epistolary COVID novels. The epistolary <laughs> COVID novels. fabulous.
2: Yeah. <laughs> email. Yeah, yeah, with email and and and. Twitter and all sorts of things that could be, uh, be really interesting. <laughs> the yeah, problem is I, I you just fell in love with
0: your book, so we want more like it. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, the thing is, is like, you know, I would feel more confident doing something like that if, if all of this had a defined ending. Right. But because it doesn't, you know, with the memoir, I could at least shrug and say, okay, this is as far as I've gotten. Thanks. But I feel like with the book, you would owe a reader a better ending, and unless it was like one of those sad and he died kind of endings, um, I don't know that. Wait, you no, no, can no, he
0: died it. beautifully. Make it like opera.
2: <laughs> I well, don't know that you could do that right now. That's so literary, though, is to have a non-ending ending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, you'd probably win a Booker Prize or something, you know, whatever <laughs> that is, or some some big prize. Having a non-ending ending um, because I'm sorry. My mom was a was a was a uh, lit, um, literature professor at uh, at Idaho State, and um, you know I get caught up in these things.
0: <laughs> so what comes? What's next after Wolf's pr- Princess? What are you working on right now?
3: Um,
1: right now, I decided um, in my I actually have a file on um, Google Docs that's titled "The Going Wide and Escaping Nursing Project." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i'm um re-release i took down all of my books from amazon a couple months ago um all of my solo titles and like i told you guys i've been hopefully in the process of getting all of my night shifted books back so i'm recovering everything and re-releasing everything and so i should kind of be having a book release a month for like the next eight months based on my old stuff and i'm going to try and use that to launch pad writing some more um books in one of those series that I particularly like. that that that's what I'm working on now is just trying to fashion some sort of escape route from bedside I feel like I can be honest with you guys because you're writers and you don't expect me you, you to like <laughs> slave away in the hospital for forever so <laughs> yeah. I,
0: any kind of creativity right now is is precious. We were just chatting with uh, one of our number last week when Cliff was saying, "How do you write in- during COVID at home with children?" So there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges. My hats off to you for keeping at it during the last year in spite of everything.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: And we will put links to your stuff that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love email. Cassie, if somebody wants to email you, do you get back to them? Can we uh, send you a note?
1: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. And oh. I have like on my website, um, it's cassiealexander.com. Uh, oh, there's like a contact form there that actually um, comes through to me. So oh.
0: Perfect. I will make sure to put it in the liner notes. And thank you so much for coming with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: It is. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Dear Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Lingberg. You can hear more from Michael Lingberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag. And hey, thanks so much for listening.